0: is from John 4, 5 through 9. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so was Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, his sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to church this morning. Welcome, uh, especially if you're new. We're happy to have you with us. Thanks for joining us on this somewhat dreary Sunday morning. We got a little bit of winter this week, um, which is fine. Uh, We probably have more on the way. So before we get started, before we jump into this text, uh, I want to, we say we don't do announcements. This is kind of an announcement. We have a new way that you can give. Uh, You can text to give. So if you text a number that will correspond to how much you want to give, so if you want to give $10, then you could text the number 10 to 84321 then uh, it'll take you through a brief introduction, like here's how to give through texting process. You can sign in, and then from then on, you can just text in to give. Um, so we we're going to do a bit more on our finances this morning. We're not doing that uh, for a more full picture of our finances as a church, which we want to share together. Uh, stick around next week after the service. But yeah, text to give opportunity. Giving is a part of our worship, so you can text while you're singing. Tithe, tithe and text, finally. What a world we live in. <laughs> yeah, thanks Silicon Valley. Um, so this is our final week in our series, Bringing Peace to the Culture War. Next week we're going to begin a new series where we're going through 1 Peter and we're going to have a look at suffering. Um, I hope that next week's, I hope that the series we start next week is uh, as relevant and as helpful Um, as I think this series, or as I hope this series has been, we've got to do something pretty special, which is uh, connecting with topics that are really happening in our culture and seeing how the Bible speaks specifically to those topics. We've been sourcing each of the topics that we deal with from a particular website called eon.co uh, it's a non-Christian website, but with some great uh, think pieces on it. And we've been engaging each week with one of those essays that they have on that website and seeing how does the Bible speak to this topic that's happening in our culture. Hopefully, it's a topic that you are uh, engaged with yourself, that your coworkers and yourself and your friends are already talking about. That's our hope. So this final week, we're engaging with an essay, by a man named Kenneth Primrose. He's the head of religion and philosophy at Robert Gordon's College in Aberdeen, Scotland. Uh, So he's probably got a very cool voice. And the thesis of his essay is also the title of his essay, which is helpful. He says that understanding other religions is fundamental to citizenship. The argument that he's making is that in order to engage in the pluralistic society that we live in, in order to actually be a functioning citizen in the world that we share with people of multiple different faiths, multiple different uh, religious outlooks, worldviews, people that would claim no no affiliation with any faith, if we're going to act as citizens in this type of society, then we must, the religious among us and the non-religious among us, must develop a sort of religious literacy, literacy, he calls it. I forgot to do my vocal warm-ups this morning. Um, I don't do those any morning, in case you're wondering. Um, So what that means is engaging in conversation with people of other faiths. We need to learn how to do that as a skill. That's what he's arguing. So I think that this article is, in a way, a perfect closing to our series. Because those types of conversations between us and people of other faiths are where all that we've covered in the series will really take place. It'll happen in the midst of conversation with people that don't necessarily agree with us or hold the same beliefs or views or values that we do. So in his article, he states, many of the most important moral disagreements break out along religious lines. Indeed, differing religious views on freedom, sexuality, and justice threaten social cohesion. That must not be allowed to happen. One crucial way that people can best learn to live with one another is by increasing their religious literacy. What he's getting at is that our faith can never truly be relegated to just the private sphere of our life. It necessarily takes place in the public sphere because we're always having discussions about values based around things like sexuality, justice, and freedom. And those values are informed by our more deeply held religious beliefs. So our beliefs make their way into the public sphere, sort of whether we like it or not. And that means we must be able to empathize with the people that we're speaking to, whose beliefs are also necessarily making their way into the public sphere. Our faith can't be something that we just hold privately, so long as it's going to be influencing the values that we live with in the world. So it, that can be a particularly difficult thing to do, to be able to truly empathize with the perspective of another person, with their most deeply held religious belief. He says that the key is to move into their belief system, not merely as just a set of premises, but as their lived experience. It's a deep empathy that he's calling us to in the way that we engage with people of other faiths. He says that there's sort of a key that unlocks the ability to do this. He says the key to this kind of understanding is dialogue. This isn't the all-too-common conversation in which the goal is to poke holes in another's religious argument. Rather, the purpose is only to understand however fanciful or wrong the beliefs might appear. Now, this is actually particularly difficult to do. It's difficult to dialogue in this way. In fact, when I was reading the comments section of this article, which the comments section, if you don't believe in original sin... You should read any comments section, uh, and then you'll be convinced. It's the, it's the argument for it now. In all the seminaries, they're talking about it. Um, that's not true. But they, uh, in this comment section, uh, it was interesting because both religious people and non-religious people were, it, were sort of offended by his premise, that he's calling us into this deep empathy with people of differing beliefs and views than we have. Uh, The religious person is saying, you know, if I'm really stepping into another's value system and another's belief system in this way, then it's more like a betrayal of my own belief system. I know why I don't take their beliefs seriously, and therefore I don't really need to engage with them. So for the religious person, there's this, uh, it, within their belief system, there's a reason to not engage in the type of dialogue he's calling us to. But you see, the non-religious person had the same argument. The non-religious person was saying, it, for me to engage with a, a religious person in a, sort of, in, in a dialogue in which I'm seeking to truly understand and truly empathize with their worldview, is in a sense me associating with these organizations and institutions that I think have just brought so much harm into the world. It's me validating and justifying these, yeah, yeah, this harm that's brought into the world by what I would say were these false institutions. So the religious person and the non-religious person both have reasons built into their worldviews to not engage with each other. it's It's like the things that they share is, we don't need to talk to each other. And it stems from this type of pride that says, I know why you think I'm wrong. I already know why you think I'm wrong. And therefore, we don't have anything to talk about. There's nothing that we really need to discuss. There's nothing I could discover through a dialogue that would better inform why you think I'm wrong. That's the pride that is undergirding our inability to engage in a real dialogue. There's a real disconnect. So in our text this morning, we're walking through a pretty big chunk. We didn't read the whole thing initially. Uh, we just sort of got an introduction because to read the whole thing, we all would have been standing for too long, and that's the worst. Um, but what we see is Jesus engaging with a woman of another faith, of a faith different from his own. And he engages in such a helpful dialogue. We see sort of an archetypal dialogue for how we should be engaging with people of other faiths. And when uh, we look into this, we'll be able to see how we should enter into those dialogues. So what we're looking at is Jesus talking with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Jesus is on a long trip, and he passes through Samaria. He's thirsty. It's in the afternoon. It's probably noon. And he's sitting at a well, and a Samaritan woman approaches, and he asks her for a drink of water. Now, Samaritans and Jews had no dealings with each other. That's what the text says. So uh, for him to ask for this water is bridging this disconnect that would have been inherent in both of their worldviews. Both of them assumed we don't engage with each other. And Jesus immediately steps in and bridges that gap. So we're going to see how he does that. The Samaritans were the, the, the Samaritans were the remaining Jews that were not <clears throat> that were not taken into exile by the Assyrians. So as they remained, uh, they intermarried with foreigners. And so, once the Jews that were taken into exile returned, then they saw these, uh, these biracial, intermarried uh, people, at Samaritans, as uh, now unclean and as totally other. And so, they distanced themselves from the remaining Samaritans, uh, such that their histories and their view of the faith had become totally, uh, it, it forked in the road. They'd become totally separate. They didn't engage with each other. They had this deep history of not engaging with each other. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans. Jesus steps in and bridges that gap. So we're going to look at their dialogue this morning. We're going to see two things. We're going to be doing two things when we look at their dialogue. We're going to be looking at the the form of their dialogue as well as the content of their dialogue. So the form, meaning how are they saying what they're saying? What's the tone? What's the intonation? What is the, How does this conversation, how is it taking place? And secondly, we're going to be looking at the content of their conversation. What is it that they're saying themselves? What is, what is the meaning that they're carrying with their language? The reason I want to draw that out, that we're looking at both form and content, is that typically it, it, we, we prioritize one over the other. We say that form matters, content doesn't matter, or content matters and form doesn't matter. Typically in Christian circles, we say that form doesn't matter, but content matters. So that's why Christian movies are so bad. <laughs> because it doesn't really matter how we're saying it. It just matters that we're saying it. The content is all that matters. We're just trying to deliver it in whatever package we can. You know, God is not dead. Two, we've made that mistake twice! <laughs> um, because the, we prioritize only, only content over form. And we're going to look more deeply at how harmful that can be. And uh, oftentimes, I think that if we're painting with broad strokes, which we are now, that our culture can prioritize form over content. So that the important thing isn't necessarily what I'm saying. It isn't actually the argument that I'm making and whether it's valid or invalid, but it's the way I'm saying it. It's what it makes you feel when I say it. The form is the only thing that matters. Because they made, you know, Avengers Civil War, which if you really liked that movie, I just watched it. I didn't like it, so I apologize. Um, I don't apologize for God's not dead, though. No one should like that. So, form and content of their conversation. When they're speaking together, they move through three topics. These three topics are going to be the three points that we move through. The first thing that they discuss is water. And in their discussion of water, what we see Jesus pull out is this universal need that we all have. And then they're going, Jesus in like, spins the conversation on a dime, it seems, and they start discussing the woman's husband, or actually lack of husband, just the man that she's living with. And so they discuss husbands, sort of in general. And in that, Jesus is pointing out how the woman is trying to address this universal need that we all have. And then finally, the conversation switches to worship. And it's when we see their conversation on worship that we see that when they were discussing the water and when they were discussing husbands, they were always discussing worship the whole time. So that's our outline. Water, husbands, and worship. So, water. Let's go ahead and join them in their conversation and re-enter the text. Jesus has just asked for some water, and she says, why are you asking me? Jews and Samaritans don't have any dealings with each other. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The first thing I want to point out in their conversation is this Characteristic of Jesus, which we see his incredible flexibility. In the chapter before this, in chapter three, uh, Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, approaches Jesus at night. And Jesus has an incredibly helpful dialogue with Nicodemus, but he approaches him very differently than he approaches this Samaritan woman. And we see that type of flexibility with whoever Jesus is dealing with. He's a student of the moment and of who he's speaking to in that moment. And he adjusts himself to cater, to tailor his message to the individual that he is speaking to. It's a really important skill that Jesus has. It's actually uh, pretty incredible to see happen. He addresses no two people the same. With the woman, with Nicodemus, there's this difference in the way that he approaches them, always tailored towards their particular need. So, he's at a well, he's asking for water, and he shifts the discourse to be about water, about water itself, which he then expands to point out this transcendent meaning of water that would have been missed in this everyday experience. It's a transcendence that he's able to pull out of the everyday. We see in him this authenticity in his conversation and this presence in his conversation. He's authentic in what he's describing, and he's very present in that moment, looking at what's happening, what is actually taking place in the moment that I'm speaking in, and how does my message relate to this? How does the gospel take something like water and make it, transcendent. People don't typically like to talk to Christians about our faith, and I think one of the reasons is because when we start talking about our faith, it becomes, it becomes canned and impersonal. Uh, it becomes these rote speeches. Our evangelism is rarely tailored to the moment, but it's often a a speech that we just sort of throw at whoever happens to be standing in front of us. And and in fact, in our evangelism, one of the least important things is who's standing in front of us. The more important thing is the speech that we have to say. When we aren't students of the moment, oftentimes people read through that, and, and it seems like this doesn't seem like an authentic thing that you're saying as part of our conversation now. This seems like something canned, just made earlier, that you can use as sort of a one-size-fits-all to throw on whoever happens to be standing in front of you. This is monologue. This isn't dialogue. People understand, and they get that lack of care. We don't see that in Jesus. Jesus is always speaking with a complete person who has a full story, and so he speaks into the moment that he is in with them to what is happening in their lives then. So when he's with a woman, talking about water, he draws out what this water really means. He also, in his language, is very tangible. This is something that we can miss as well. How concrete his language is about spiritual things. It's accessible. It's in a language that the listener can grasp, because he's speaking to the listener for the listener not just so that he can be known. So he uses metaphors like water or bread or walking with light, things that are easily grasped, things that we can see. He's able to speak in this way, the transcendent into the everyday experiences of our lives. And that's what we're in so many ways called to do. We're stepping into our daily lives with people amidst all of these normal, typical circumstances. And we're demonstrating how there's nothing normal or typical about them. But there are actually transcendent realities that we're dealing with every day that people don't see and don't have opportunities to see unless they're shown. Jesus was always drawing those moments out. We miss those moments because... We don't view our faith in terms of a worldview that's informing each and everything that we do in our lives, that's informing why we go to work, that's informing why why and how we answer the next email that we get, that's informing how how we relate to our coworkers. Instead, we view our faith as simply a set of premises that we either assent to or reject. But that's not the faith that Jesus had. He had one that colored everything that he saw And therefore, he was able to see the transcendent in the everyday and demonstrate it to the people that he was engaging with in those present moments. C.S. Lewis became a master of this as well, of seeing the transcendent in the everyday and exposing it. He, in this quote that I'll share, makes the same point that Jesus makes in his final statement. Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. C.S. Lewis says it like this He says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, There is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Lewis is getting at exactly what Jesus is getting at in his statement. He's saying, You see, you relate to this thirst, this physical thirst. And because of it, you have this understanding that there must be a water to satisfy it. Well, Jesus takes that metaphor and he extends it and he says, you see, there's also this other thirst that's taking place in you. There's also this spiritual thirst that you're looking to satisfy. And I'm saying that if you knew who I was that was talking to you, you'd ask me and I could satisfy that. It's tangible language that makes sense to the listener so that she can identify the source of her true thirst, the transcendent thirst that might not have been on her mind in that everyday moment. Jesus was able to see the transcendent in the everyday and then show it to her. So she kind of understands, but uh, I think at this point she mostly doesn't. So there's a bit of a misunderstanding, and the woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Complete spiritual fulfillment. It would save me a trip to the well. That's for sure. That's one less thing. One less trip to the well. So there's a bit of a disconnect here. But Jesus brings clarity when he introduces their second topic, which is that of husbands. So we'll read John four, sixteen to 18. Jesus said to her, this feels like it comes out of nowhere when you read it. He says, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. The one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. This seems like a radical change in subject, but really what Jesus is doing is he's tightening and targeting this metaphor that they're working in towards the woman's particular experience. See, he's really revealing two things by switching the topic towards that of her husband or lack of husband, the man that she's living with. What he's revealing is, first of all, his own supernatural ability to know her. He's never met her before, and yet he knows these intimate details of her life. That stands out to her as, this man must be a prophet. So that's the first purpose that he's uh, utilizing when he switches the subject here, to inform her, I really know you. The second thing that he's doing is demonstrating the woman's attempt to handle her own lack, her own spiritual thirst. What he's pointing at is, you know, that spiritual thirst that I was just talking about. It feels like I'm switching the topic to husbands, but the reality is, I'm not. I was pointing out this universal need that you had, this desire to be filled in some way, to to see something so valuable that you would pour your life into it, that you might feel some value yourself, and. It may feel like I'm switching the topic to husbands, but I'm not. Because husbands, men, that's where you're trying to find this value that I was saying you were looking for. He's exposing to the woman by a line of questioning what her true spiritual thirst is and the way in which she's going about satisfying that type of spiritual thirst he's speaking with the woman in terms of her own life and her own story. He's speaking right into the particular thing that she is looking to address her spiritual thirst. It's not the same for all of us. It's not typical that Jesus sits down and says, bring me your husband. That's not a part, that's not on his Roman roads. Bring me your husband. Then you ask them to bring you your husband. No, he's speaking directly to their particular experience. So I have a, a brief story uh, to sort of give us a picture of what this looks like when it's done poorly. Uh, and it's, a story, it's, it's my own story. So when I first started working here, uh, I was talking with Russ, and Russ was saying, you know, I haven't seen you speak and I said, I hoped you hadn't noticed. And he had noticed. So he was like, I've got a, a place for you to speak, a perfect first place where I can sort of see you teach and we can start, start you down this road. Uh, it's the Denver County Jail uh, for the, the, the women's jail. And I was like, well, it's right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. But, uh, it was like, great, my first time speaking in front of you will be in the women's jail. Uh, it's perfect, because I'll, I'll be there anyway. <laughs> um, Russ is a pretty intense dude, so that's kind of, uh, it was kind of surprising, but it was also kind of like, well, this is what you thought you wanted. So my first time there, uh, I, I had prepped and I had laid out exactly what I wanted to go through and like, the study that I was going to you know, b- bring into uh, the women's jail for the, for the women who attended, those poor women. And I, uh, uh, we get there and we show up and two, two women came. And we sit down in chairs in like a loud echoey room and I, I just drag them through the content that I had written. It was brutal. Uh, things that I thought were so apparent, I was like explaining like 15 different ways. Uh, finally, Russ stepped in and was like, why don't you try this? And I was like, well, thanks. They could have shared that like 15 minutes ago. Um, so we get in the car and to, to drive back, and Russ goes, how do you think it went? And I was like, ah, uh, you know. He goes, yeah, it was probably about a four. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, out of five, It wasn't. Uh, (laughs) It was out of 10. (laughs) So as Russ and I were driving home, uh, he brought up, consider how Jesus does ministry. Consider uh, the way that he moves into these situations in people's lives. And he quoted John 5, 9. says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So that means that Jesus himself is saying, I can only do what the Father is already doing. I can only step into the work that the Father is actually the one doing. I can't just write this this perfect message and then throw it on someone uh, and then hope that it does some magic in their lives. Instead, I I have to become a student of providence, a student of what is God already doing in this person's life. I need to learn to get to know that and then to step in and address that. Russ's advice for the next time we went to the jail was don't prepare. You need to ask questions. See, Jesus, when he's speaking with the woman, he knows her. He's the incarnate, he's he's God with us. He's the incarnate son of God. He, He knows what's happening in her life, the particulars of her situation. We don't have that type of knowledge. At least most of us don't. And so that means we have to ask a lot of questions. And in the conversations that we enter into with people, we we have to take the time to get to know what is God doing here that I could then step into. Because if Jesus could do nothing other than what the Father was doing, how much more is that true for us in the situations that we enter to, the people that we're looking to get to know? The people that we're looking to share ourselves and our faith with? It takes getting to know them, treating them as other people with full and complete stories. In that sense, in our dialogues, in our conversations, even when sharing our faith, we don't really get to lead the conversation. We're really following, discovering what is God doing here? How does the gospel and what God has shared with me speak to that? And then we can share that. Something truly helpful for the person we're speaking to. So I had such a terrible first experience with that because I didn't take the time to get to know the women that were sitting in chairs right in front of me. That I had time to ask questions, figure out what motivated them, what they cared about, what their desires were. I just had my message that I wanted to get through. It was about a four. Because of this knowledge that Jesus demonstrates of the woman, of her personally, she switches the way that she deals with him, and she begins to treat him like a prophet. And because of that, she switches the conversation from the everyday to something transcendent. Because of the knowledge that he had demonstrated of her, she's the one who's saying, show me about tell me about these more transcendent things. The rest of their conversation goes like this. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. There's so much to unpack in that last bit of their conversation. We've, it's just far beyond the scope of uh, this morning's message to unpack all that they discussed there. But the thing that I want to point out is that their conversation switches towards being about worship. And that's what their conversation was about the whole time. Jesus sees this everyday experience of water, and he brings the transcendent reality of that water, of this thirst that she has in her soul, in her heart, into that conversation. And then he introduces, this idea, he introduces the topic of her husbands and the men that she's relying on to satisfy that desire. That she might have something in her life that was so valuable that by committing her life to it, she would in turn feel that value. That she might have something to truly worship. And Jesus is saying, those husbands, like the water in this well, you've had five of them because they aren't satisfying you. You keep coming back to this water in Jacob's well because whoever drinks this water is just going to be thirsty again. And and that's just like the spiritual thirst you're trying to cover with these men. You keep coming back because it hasn't satisfied you, because you're worshiping the wrong thing. And Jesus was able to lead her from water to husbands to this idea of worship, to point out the transcendent reality of who he really is as the one that satisfies you as your object of worship in your life, as the one that doesn't make you thirsty anymore, but as the one who truly knows you. The everyday points towards the transcendent, which points towards Jesus. That's what he was able to do in the midst of that dialogue. In the essay from Eon that we are uh, sort of sparked this message. Uh, it, Kenneth Primrose says there are three skills that we need to develop in order to be able to truly engage with people in a, in a healthy dialogue. These are active listening, honest questioning, and humility. I think those are so helpful. Active listening, honest questioning, and humility. And You know who I think we see those really demonstrated by in the text? is the Samaritan woman. She's able to come in contact with Jesus in a real way because she's embodying these things, active listening, honest questioning, and humility. She actively listens and remains with him, follows him down a metaphor that she didn't quite understand. You know, whoever drinks the water I give them will never be thirsty again. Great, it'll save me a trip to the well. She continues with him actively listening. She honestly questions, why are you asking me to give you water? Where, I can see that you're a prophet, so where is it that we should worship? What do you think about how we should actually worship? She honestly questions, and she's humble, such that when Jesus points out an apparent sin, something they both would have agreed was wrong in her life, she remains with him, able to hear it and able to realize that she was just being known truly and humbly in that situation. And because of that, she's able to come in contact with Jesus in a real and complete way. Later on, as the story continues, the woman eventually leaves and she runs back to her hometown. And this is what she says about Jesus. This is what she announces to her town. She says, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? See, what was it that actually stayed with this woman? What was it that she actually wanted to share with her whole town? It was, come come see this man who really knew me. Come see, this, come see this person who I thought was just a weary traveler looking for water, but then, but then he really knew me. He told me all that I ever did. And you think, what could possibly convince you that someone you were sitting next to that was asking you for water was the Christ, was the Son of God, sent from God? I think that one of the only things that it could be was he knew you. We see this trend throughout the scriptures that this this evidence, this most compelling thing that people experience with Jesus is that he really knows them. So that this man that truly knew me, that exposed to me in the midst of our conversations my own sin was the same one that was offering me eternal life. Was the same one that in the midst of completely knowing me and knowing my sin was the one that was offering me to never be thirsty again. To never chase after false desires again. Inviting me to worship in spirit and truth. That means coming that means coming to God as yourself. Being completely known. That's what's so often missing from our dialogues and from our conversations. We aren't willing to expose ourselves to the dangers of being truly known because we haven't realized how deeply known we are by Jesus. And yet in the midst of his deep knowledge of us, he still offers, not because, he, not because he's ignorant, in, but in a sense in spite of his true knowledge, because of his true love. I hope that looking through these conversations will help reshape yours, that by approaching your faith, with an active listening, an honest questioning, and a true humility, you might be able to let that color your conversations with others. That they might start to experience what it means to be truly known and still cared for. I think that's what sticks with people. It's what sticks with us. So let me take some questions before we wrap up. Regarding dialogue, do you uh, differ differ religious argument from moral value system? Regarding regarding dialogue, dialogue exists. Do you differ religious argument from moral value system? Okay, I'm just going to jump in on what I what I think that that's getting at. Uh, I don't distinguish between religious argument and arguing moral value systems. The reason that I wouldn't make that distinction is because your moral value distinctions are coming from somewhere, and those are ultimately coming from faith claims. An example is, uh, we recently passed an a, amendment that allows for assisted suicide to prescribe drugs that, so that you could uh, take them and uh, commit suicide. So that's, that's a, a dialogue that's taking place in the world of healthcare, But it can't be isolated to a question of just health care, because it's not obvious that a drug that allows you to kill yourself is advancing health. That is a moral value distinction, but it's also a religious distinction because it, it involves what, how do we relate to our own lives? How do we relate to our own pain and suffering? What autonomy do we have over our own personal experiences? So the question isn't merely about morals and values. In order to answer it, you have to be based on a particular faith claim that you have. So to make that distinction, it's a false distinction. You can't make the distinction between morals and values and religious argument because they're all taking place on different levels with each other. It's just a matter of what depth are you speaking with the person at that you're speaking with or arguing with. Uh, It's sort of the, it's that false idea that you can have a merely private faith and then just deal with morals and values out here. It's impossible, because your private faith will always color your public morals and values. Uh, So no, I don't don't think it's a distinction that we can actually make in any sort of honesty or coherence in ourselves. Next question. I don't know all that Jesus knows about the person in front of me. How do I compensate for that reality? Russ's advice to me was, we've got to ask a lot of questions. And I think that's pretty good. Like As far as practical advice, that's that's what we can do. Questions are the tool that we have to get to know each other. The one other thing that I'd add to that is would you allow yourself to be known by that person? I think if you wouldn't, then I think it would be rare or odd that they would allow themselves to get to be known by you. And I don't think that you would have the safety to be truly known unless you had really internalized that truth of the gospel, of the depth of God's knowledge of you. I think that it, in a sense, requires that thinking towards Jesus' knowledge of you in order to be able to open yourself up to be truly known so that another might do the same. So ask good questions. Next. Next. When a pastor stands up to preach, how can he ask questions like Jesus did at the well? Is there a different forum that requires a different kind of preaching? The well, the jail, the pulpit here this morning. So I think that being a student of Providence, being a student of the role that you are fulfilling in the particular conversations that you're in, allows you to adjust to the different requirements of your speaking. So when I was talking with this about Russ initially, he said the difficult part is when you're preaching you're sort of, you know, you sort of have a shotgun and it's like, all right, hope I make it. Because in the midst of a conversation, you can go, you can, by questioning and by deepening that relationship, come to understand what is happening in this person's life that we can directly speak to. In a room like this, we can speak to themes and we can speak to topics. Uh, we can speak to things that the scripture has spoken to, and so that in a sense, there are these universals in our lives, and we relate to them on that level. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would move to take the language that we use up here and make it personal into your life. When, when you're coming into a room to hear someone preach, there's a sense in which you're, it, 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 you have a responsibility to take this language and frame it towards your personal moment. To think through it critically and say, what in my life am I worshiping in order to cover this spiritual thirst? What am I returning to over and over again, seeking satisfaction and not finding it? See, that responsibility in this type of context is really on you to do. We have a responsibility to speak to things that we think are really happening in your lives, to speak to questions that really matter to you and where you are. This sermon is taking place in Denver in 2017, hopefully connecting with things that matter to us here in this moment. Uh, but it, yeah, it, it, it's uh, more. in a sense, it's less difficult preaching than in like, a one-on-one conversation, but in another sense, I think it's more. Difficult. Uh, but we all have different contexts that we move in in our lives. And that requires us to be students of providence. If God is really in control of everything, then we're only stepping into things that he's already doing. So that means we need to step in with humility. Seeking his work and his values in our conversations, in our dialogue. Okay. No, was that the last one? Lost count. Great. Okay. We're about to take communion which is a tangible expression of the transcendent reality that Jesus, the man that the Samaritan woman was talking to who knew her so well, also knows us that well. And despite his complete knowledge of us and our undeservedness, he gave his body and his blood that we might be united with him so that we might be able to worship him in spirit and truth. We ask that if you're not a Christian, that you wouldn't take the bread and the wine. Because it's a declaration that you believe that Jesus did that for you. And if you don't believe that Jesus did that for you, then it's there'd be no sense in declaring it. So, as we take communion, I uh, pray that our hearts would be centered on that reality. So let's pray together. Father, you know us completely. And you know are moving through the world even now, seeking people to worship you in spirit and truth. Father, I pray that you would equip us in our dialogue as your church to move into conversations that we might have otherwise avoided, to show people the transcendent in their everyday experiences so that they might see how deeply you know them, and the depth of your love towards them. That they might come to understand better your patience and your tolerance towards them and that that might draw them towards you. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts to enable us to see more clearly the way that the gospel applies in our own hearts and in the hearts of the people that we're speaking with. The way that your word speaks directly to the everyday realities that we're in the everyday circumstances. Father, that takes a work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would empower us to worship you truly in spirit and truth. Father, I lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.